Amen. God bless you as you give. We're in part four of this kind of ominous titled series, Enemies of the Heart. How many of you have been here for each, each of the three prior? Okay, good. If you haven't, again, you can listen online. Uh, I have borrowed this material from an American preacher by the name of Andy Stanley. He's a very, very big, big, monstrous church in, uh, in Georgia, I believe, and I wrote this book, and I thought it was amazing content that could be used uh, for us here in this place today. And uh, in part one, we started making some observations uh, about what he calls, anyway, enemies of the heart. And uh, we're told by the culture, watch your behavior, watch what you do. Uh, we teach that to our kids, you know, the kids who were who were shall we say, being a little bit animated this morning. You know, we tell, hey, watch your behavior. Straighten up. Don't do this. Don't do that. And that's all good. Uh, but when's the last time we had a conversation with our kids and told them, watch your heart. Watch your heart. And uh, so this is what the Bible teaches. The Bible, it's not that it discourages looking after your behavior, but it goes deeper. And it says what's in your heart will eventually come out in your life. So the question is, uh, what's going on in there? A uh, famous proverb that uh, you should memorize from Proverbs 4, verse 23, uh, guard your heart, the writer said, for everything you do flows from your heart, for in it is a wellspring of life. So what's going on on the inside? How's your heart doing? And we talked about four heart toxins, if you will, just as the physical heart can be diseased without us knowing it sometimes, so can the spiritual heart be diseased without us knowing it sometimes until it bubbles over. And all these toxins have a kind of common factor of a debt that has to be paid somehow. So in guilt, do you remember what it is that's on the screen? It's I-O-U, right? So the person lives their life out of a sense of guilt. They took something from someone, may have been a physical thing, may have been emotional, whatever, and they have this sense of they have to pay uh, that debt back to someone or perhaps to many people. And they live kind of with that, that dark cloud of guilt over their lives. So what was the remedy for guilt, do you remember? Starts with a C. Yeah, can, who said that? Good for you, yeah, confession, right? But we talked about what confession is and what confession is not. And uh, sometimes we have a misconception about confession. Uh, and then last week we talked about anger, anger. And that's not I owe you, but that's you. You owe me now. And you need to pay me for what you took from me. And I will, I will seek vengeance and my personal quest for vengeance won't be satisfied until it's meted out upon you, right? Pay me what you owe me. And what was the remedy for anger? Starts with an F. It's not a bad word. Forgiveness. Yeah, good. You weren't even here and you got it right. Yeah, for forgiveness, right? And forgiveness, we say, well, hold on. That doesn't mean forgetting. That doesn't mean condoning. That doesn't mean accepting. It doesn't mean it's okay. It means to cancel the debt. It means you, you literally cancel the debt of the person who owes you. You release your right for personal vengeance, and you let God 
mete out the justice that God meets out, right? Uh, last night at the Youth Alpha, we talked about the very, very same thing, talked about this concept uh, of forgiveness. Today, we're going to talk about greed. And greed is not uh, I owe you or you owe me. Greed is I owe me. It's I owe me. We'll get into it in a second. And then next week, uh, we're going to finish with jealousy. And in jealousy, it's God who owes me. He gave you something, but he didn't give it to me. So God owes me. I'm jealous. So again, the writer of the Proverbs, it's uh, Solomon, uh, if I remember correctly, uh, guard your heart, he said. And um, many of us in church circles, we're looking for a magic bullet. Uh, we're looking for something supernatural to cure us of our internal problems. Uh, but what God has done is he's given us the Bible. He's given us his word, and he wants us to learn skills. It's not a magic bullet. You have to learn skills and learn new ways of doing things, new ways of thinking, new ways of relating to people. And when you learn those ways, you start to be changed. And this is what God wants. Rarely will he do the magic bullet solution. He's certainly capable of doing it, but most of the time he wants you to learn a new way of doing something. So today we're going to talk about uh, number three, heart toxin number three, and that is greed. I owe me. Not you owe me or I owe you. No, I owe me. And in greed, I don't know if any of you recognize the, the fellow on the screen. Do you know his name? Who is it? It's Scrooge. He's like the epitome of greed to us, Ebenezer Scrooge. Do you know the story of the Christmas carol? You don't know the, oh, this is a marvelous, marvelous story. So in greed, we have this sense of, look, I earned this. What I work for, I earned. It's a tough world. And I, don't know any, I don't owe anybody else. I owe me. And in greed, greed is a really hard one to detect. Because a lot of traits of greed, on the surface, they look okay. Uh, the story of Scrooge, I mean, this thing has been portrayed in television and movies and storytelling over and over and over. This old, old story from Charles Dickens, right? And you have this, you have this man who is, I mean, he is the epitome of greed. He, all he cares about, it seems, is money, 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 and more of it. He's, uh, he's a mean person to everybody else. He's, what does he say about Christmas? He starts with an H. Humbug, he says, to Christmas. A fancy way for picking a man's pocket every December 25th, right? And so he's this mean, mean, nasty guy. And him and his, him and his partner, Jacob Marley, they, they lend people money and property and whatever. And Jacob Marley dies. Right? And Scrooge goes to make sure he's dead, really. He shows very little compassion toward his partner of many years. And Marley, on his deathbed, if you remember, he says to Scrooge, he says, we were wrong. We were wrong in the way that we treated people. We were wrong in what we did. And Scrooge says, what do you mean? We are business people. We're making money. And Marley says to him, mankind is our business. And and he, and he dies, and he says to Scrooge, save yourself on his deathbed. He says, Scrooge says, save myself from what? And Marley dies, right? And then Scrooge goes, he has a nice meal, and uh, he goes home, 
And he gets, first Marley appears to him with all of his shackles. He's in the afterlife, you know, and Jacob Marley comes to him and he, and he, he scares the daylights out of Ebenezer Scrooge. And he says, you're going to be visited by what? Three, three ghosts are going to visit you in the night, three spirits. And you get the ghost of Christmas pass and he goes and he, he takes Scrooge on a journey to see his childhood and his youth and his young adult years. And you learn how the character becomes this greedy man. He's a harsh life as a child, as a teenager, as a young adult. And he, he comes to a place where he says, you know what? I owe me. I don't know anybody else. I owe me. This is a hard world. And the only way to make it is to look after yourself. And he, he, you see how he becomes this, this greedy man. And then another ghost takes him to the present. And you can see how everybody talks about Scrooge, you know, behind his back and how everybody just detests this guy. And uh, his, his family, some, some of his family shows compassion toward him, even though he doesn't want to spend any time with him. But most people just flat out dislike him. And then you get the worst one, and that's the ghost of Christmas future. Right, and the, the ghost shows him someone's funeral, and uh, the way that they talk about this person is really wow. He was a really nasty person, really bad guy. Only people who want to go to his funeral just for the food, and so he they're selling his stuff. They're they're finding a way to to pilfer his his belongings, and then he wants to know who's this person who they're talking about. And, of course, the ghost points to the tombstone, and it's his grave, right? And he wakes up in shock, and he realizes he's got another chance, and his life is transformed and becomes this amazing, generous person. We love the story. Why? Because we relate to the character. Greed has some things in it that we say, well, you know, that's not all bad. It's good to be a saver of your money. Um, it's good to look after yourself. It's, you, it, most greedy people, they work very, very hard. Uh, they, they, you know, they do things like they're going to plan for their future. They're going to plan for everything so that their kids don't have to look after it, for example. They're very hardworking. They're organized. They're all of these things. And we say, well, what's wrong with that? There's not much wrong with that. So it has a way of masking itself behind a lot of good traits. Uh, another, another Christmas movie, uh, any of you remember It's a Wonderful Life? Nobody knows that movie. Well, let me take you back to the 1950s. Go ahead and play the clip. Wow, $20,000 a year, and he turned it down. What's wrong with it, right? But you see how he shakes his hand at the end, and he realizes, wait, wait a second. I just shook the hand of greed. It looks good on the outside, right? It has a nice presentation to it. But then you realize, well, oh, there's something about this that just doesn't. So greed is hard to detect. I mean, people will say, I struggle with guilt. People will say, I struggle with anger. People might even say, I struggle with jealousy. Have you ever met anyone who says, I struggle with greed? 
Eh, not too many. I can't remember the last person I've met who says I struggle with greed. But greed is a very real toxin. And the problem with it is that it has some of these good points to it. Uh, another, another story, again, that's told about greed. This one, I don't know if any of you have seen this, this movie. I wouldn't recommend it to you. Uh, this is from a movie in the 80s. Now kind of a cult hit now, this movie. Uh, because the character in the movie is called Wall Street, and the character in the movie makes what is now a very famous speech about greed. It's eerie, uh, the things that he says about greed, and it, the, the movie is about insider trading uh, on Wall Street. It's, it's, you know, it's a pretty raw movie. Like I wouldn't recommend it. It's got a lot of objectionable stuff, but the speech that this character uh, makes is really quite interesting when you listen to it. This is what he says, and he runs all these corporations, big paper company, and if I remember the movie correctly, he just buys out companies and, and eliminates them uh, for the sake of, of profit, okay? And uh, this is what he says in this, in this speech. He says, and this is a speech now that's very famous. It's used in e economics classes, social studies classes, uh, ethics classes. This is what he says. He says, greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies Greed cuts through and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all of its forms, the character says, greed for life, greed for money, greed for love, greed for knowledge has marked the upward surge of mankind. And greed, again the character in the movie, greed, you mark my words, will not only save Teldar Paper, that's the company in the movie, but that other malfunctioning corporation called the USA. And the speech ends. Now very, very famous. Because what he, this character does in this movie is say, you know what, greed is good. And the problem is that to a large degree, though we say we don't believe this is true, we live like this is true. Uh, especially in North American culture, uh, we live this way. Martin Luther King Jr. said this is Black History Month, so I figured I'd give you a quote from one of the best communicators, one of the best Christian preachers uh, who's ever lived. This is what he said back in his day. We must rapidly begin the shift from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society when machines and computers, this was before the age of the internet, when machines and computers, profit motives and property rights are considered more important than people, the giant triplets of racism, materialism, and militarism are incapable of being conquered. Wow, that is almost a prophetic statement. When you look at, in particular, North American culture, my word, those three giant triplets are very much alive and well. And what do we do, especially in North American culture, the more a person has, the more wealthy they are, the more material possessions they have, the more we listen to them, the more we buy their books, the more we put them in positions of power, the more we elect them into government. I won't mention any names. Okay? It happens all around the world. Uh, we give a whole lot of credence and authority 
to those who have a lot because we're a very, very materialistic society and culture. Look at, look at the advertising industry. They prey on this because they tell us in 30 seconds, if you have this thing, whatever it is, a car or whatever, you are more valuable as a person. The more you have, the more your net worth is, the more valuable you are. And, you know, you just take an example. Look at people who are itinerants on the streets. These people are completely insignificant to us. We, we ignore them. We walk by them because they have nothing. And so we tend to value people on the basis of materialism, especially here in North American culture. And we preach this message over and over and over again. You are more valuable because of what you have or perhaps what you look like. It gives you value. Our young people are being taught this. We're taught this as adults, you know, well, if we can get this car, this house, this greener grass, take vacations here, there, then we're better, we're more valuable, we're more important, and so and so. So we can, we can laugh and giggle at stories like Ebenezer Scrooge and, you know, Wall Street and greed is good speeches, but to a large degree, we fall into that whole materialistic society, especially here in North America. So I want to talk to you about this subject of greed today uh, from a story that um, Jesus told that you'll find in the, the Gospel of Luke. It's only told there, uh, so if you have your paper Bible, you can go and find it. You've got an electronic Bible. It's in Luke chapter 12. Little, little short story that Jesus tells to try and illustrate greed in a, in a very, very powerful way, very poignant way. So the context of this is that Jesus is doing public teaching and public ministries in front of a large crowd of people. Uh, some of these people are followers of his. Some of these people are enemies of his. He's got a large crowd. Uh, and someone in this crowd asks him a question. And the question is this. Uh, Jesus is known as a teacher or a rabbi in that culture. And so this person is going to ask him his opinion, really to pass a judgment on a particular matter that he was having. He says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus gives him an answer. He says, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between the two of you? Now, you've got to zap back 2,000 years to understand what's going on. Uh, back then, the, the firstborn son would have the inheritance of the father and of the household. But there were cases where that would get complicated. There were cases where uh, the distribution of the inheritance would be called into question. So, for example, we have situations that would happen back then uh, where you would have a man who would be married to, let's say, two wives. Uh, not something that God condones or, or says he's a good thing in the scripture, but certainly something that happened all the time especially in the Old Testament. You see this everywhere, starting from the book of Genesis. I mean, you had people with wife after wife after wife. It's a big mess. And so you do see certain laws in the Old Testament to try and fix this mess. And one of them had to do with the inheritance, just as an example. If you, it goes like this. If you had a, a man and he had two wives, and one of them he loved and one of them he didn't like so much, 
But he has his firstborn son. Again, you got to zap back 2,000 years to the Middle East, very man-centered, very uh, uh, paternal-centered culture. And, uh, and the man, again, he, he has his firstborn son with the wife who he doesn't like. Who gets the inheritance? Does the, does the son get it? Or let's say he has another son with the wife who he loves, but that technically is second-born. Who gets the inheritance? Well, in that case, there's actually a law in the book of Deuteronomy. It says, uh, we don't care if, the, if the, the husband loves one wife and doesn't love the other. Too bad. The firstborn son gets the inheritance. That's the way that it works. But there were other cases that were complicated. And here, there appears to be something going on where this guy wants a share of, a, of an inheritance. And he's, he's saying to Jesus, you're a rabbi. I want you to be judge and jury with this thing. And I want you to tell my brother, you're obviously very authoritative. I want you to tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus essentially says no. And then he gives him this warning. Watch out, he says to him. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. This is long before Martin Luther King Jr. said what he had to say. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And then he tells a little story, presumably to the larger crowd. And this is what he says. The ground of a certain rich man, you're dealing with a culture, there's a lot of farmers, agriculture, so this is the story Jesus tells. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. Wow. So he thought to himself, uh, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he says, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger barns. And there I will store all of my surplus grain. Ha ha. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years, take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. The picture on the screen is Rembrandt's portrayal of this story. And you see in the, in the painting there, you see this, this guy, he looks kind of Ebenezer Scrooge-like, actually. He's isolated, he's alone, he's in his barn, presumably. All of his papers are all over the place. Maybe there's parts of the Bible there, but it all seems to be a big mess, and there he is by candlelight looking at his, at his money, you know, just mesmerized by what he has, and this is the way that Rembrandt portrayed the story, and uh, so, you know, you put it in modern-day terms, and you've got, uh, you've got a business owner, let's say, and his business just exploded in profit, and so the business owner says, well, what am I going to do with all this extra stuff? And he says, I know what I'll do. I'll renovate. I'll renovate. I'll make everything that I have bigger. I'll take all my wealth. I'll store it in there. I'll retire early. I'll live off of it for the rest of my life. Ha, ha, ha. I've got everything figured out. I've got it all made. Now, does that sound bad? I mean, if we're being honest, we probably would be envious of the person. We probably would say, man, I wish, we, I wish I had that. I wish I had all of that wealth. Wish I was able to retire early. Wish I was able to renovate my barns, build bigger barns, put all my stuff in it and sit there and, you know, take trips to Cuba or whatever and live off of all of my wealth and that's it. I mean, we look at that and we say, that doesn't look all bad, right? Because greed, sometimes it, it, on the outset, it, it doesn't look so bad. 
But the story, unfortunately, has a, has a rather harsh conclusion. Uh, but if you just look at it before we get to the conclusion, you see that this guy who, who is called foolish at the end of the story, we'll see that in a moment, he's very, very egocentric. So if you look at the language, he thought to himself, uh, what shall I do? Uh, m- these are my crops. Uh, this is what I'll do. I'll take my barns and I'll tear them down and I'll build bigger barns. Uh, uh, this is my grain. These are my goods. I'll say to myself. So he's very, very self-centered. And he appears to think that all of this good fortune is the result of his own effort. How many of you ever farmed before or perhaps grew up on a farm? You come from a family where they were involved in farming. Raise your hand. Okay, so you know that farming is first very, very, very hard work. What time do you get up in the morning when you're a farmer? Hmm? Four o'clock, right? Sometimes before four o'clock in the morning. I remember visiting uh, the farm country. I visited there several times in the Amish countryside in, in Pennsylvania. Man, those Amish people, those Mennonite people, they get up some early in the morning, I'm telling you. They're very, very early there at work, work in that land, right? But if you're going to, if you're going to get a huge, huge, huge harvest, how many of you know it's not just dependent on the amount of work that you do? There's a whole lot of good fortune, shall we say, in what? The skies above, right? So if you have lousy, lousy weather like Quebec, if you've got freezing rain, if you've got, you know, these, these spikes and changes in temperature and all these extremes and drought or flooding or whatever, your crop, no matter how hard you work, no matter how early you get up in the morning, your crop may be eh, you may break even, right? And the way that Jesus tells the story uh, he, he, he almost deliberately says it, you know, the, the ground of a certain man yielded an abundant harvest. The ground yielded the harvest. I mean, he had good fortune. He had good weather. Everything was right. It was a perfect combination of things. And poof, he's got a huge, huge harvest. You can take two farmers who work ex- with, with the same amount of passion, the same amount of effort, exuberance, whatever. They do everything right. One lives in this place, one lives in another place, and one's got a better harvest than the other. Why? Because there's an unknown element that factors into the equation. But this guy, he thinks that everything is the result of his own effort. And you can see where the story is going to go, the way Jesus tells it. I, 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 me, myself, and I, the, the fellow is a bit, he's a bit foolish. Do you not realize that this is not all your effort, right? There's a, there's a, a passage, in, again, in the Old Testament out of Deuteronomy when this is after God takes the people through the Red Sea, you know, the story of Moses. He brings them into the promised land, and there's a warning. When you have eaten and when you're satisfied, you need to praise the Lord your God for the good land that he's given you. Be careful, be careful, he says. Do not forget the Lord your God failing to observe his commands his laws, his decrees that I'm giving you. Otherwise, when you eat 
And when you're satisfied, you'll, you'll build fine houses. You're going to settle down. Uh, your, your herds and your flocks will grow large. Your silver and your gold are going to increase. And everything's going to be fine and dandy. And you'll have multiplied and all that. Then your heart, he says, Deuteronomy 8, verse 14, then your heart will become proud. And you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through all this pain. He led you through vast and dreadful wilderness. He led you through drought. He led you through snakes and scorpions. He brought water out of the hard rock. He gave you, he gave you Tim Hortons from the sky, you know, manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never even known, but you're going to forget. So you better remember that this doesn't come from you. It comes from God. You may say to yourself, verse 17, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. This is I owe me. This is the same story that Jesus tells hundreds and hundreds of years later. My power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. He says in verse 18 to conclude, but remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. It's a, it's a harsh warning. Way back in the Old Testament, don't become proud. Don't think that it's because of all your effort and all your ingenuity that you have what you have. You need to remember that God gave it to you. And so back to the story that Jesus tells uh, he, can, he continues to, to uh, uh, he's going to conclude it here. I'm at um, the end of verse 19. The guy's got it made. He says, I can retire early. I can take life easy. I can eat, drink, and be merry. Everything's going to work out great. But verse 20, uh, the story goes, God said to him, you fool, harsh, harsh, harsh language. You fool, this very night, this very night as you're counting your money, as you're plotting to build your bigger barns for yourself, this very night your life will be demanded from you. You are going to the other side and you're going tonight. You, you, you think that you have it all worked out and you've got it all planned out, but you're so foolish you can't plan that far ahead, can you? And he says, your life will be demanded from you, and then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And he, he tells the crowd, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. Like the, like the gravestone that you see, remember me for my stuff. Folks, I've done a lot, a lot of funerals. I have never met people in a funeral setting who say, oh, we remember this person for all their stuff. It's a strange thing, death. Very, very strange to observe, but it is a universal truth no matter what you have in this life. No matter how much you have in terms of material possessions, wealth, billions of dollars, it doesn't matter. No matter what background you come from, no matter what color your skin is, no matter what your religious values are, it doesn't matter. You cannot take it to the other side. You go with nothing. 
We try to beat that. We have cultures of, well, if we get buried in a very ornate fashion, if we get buried with all these jewels and all these things, maybe somehow it'll go to the other side. No, you take nothing with you to the other side, and you never know. You cannot plan for it with all the money in the world. You cannot stop it from coming. It's coming. Last week on Sunday night, I had the privilege, I will call it a privilege, to attend a very large funeral. There was probably over 500 people who were at the, the church that I went to. And I did not know the person who passed away. She died at the age of 31. And uh, I did not know her, but I know her father fairly well. Uh, he is the assistant superintendent uh, in our district of, uh, you know, our churches, about 110 churches, and he's the assistant to the superintendent. It was his daughter who passed away. And it was a very, very large funeral, just filled with people, you know, almost standing room only because of the, the story behind what happened and because of what happened to this, this young woman. Again, passed away at the age of 31. Uh, and just to give you the broad strokes, uh, she married a, a pastor. Uh, he's a youth pastor in one of our French churches in Lachine, I believe it is, or LaSalle. Uh, probably three, four years ago, they married, and uh, she she was having health issues, seemed like all the time, uh, but they diagnosed her with chronic fatigue syndrome, this kind of thing, and uh, she said to her husband, I want to have a, a baby, and her husband said, like, you're ill all the time. You sure you want to get pregnant now? You sure you want to have kids now? And she said, yes, I want to have kids now. Let's have kids. So he said, uh, allons-y, as he said, in the, as he was giving, telling the story uh, in this funeral. And there was probably 10 people who spoke in this funeral. It was long, went on for two hours, story after story about this woman's life. And so she became pregnant, and uh, the pregnancy was relatively healthy, but she delivered by emergency C-section. And when they delivered the baby, healthy baby boy, his name is Noah, when they delivered the baby, uh, the, the husband told the story of how he could hear the doctors say as, as they looked after in, into her uterus after they had done the cesarean section, the doctors said, what is that? And what they had discovered in her uterus was a 14 centimeter long tumor. And, they, and in, in, in the husband's words, he said, our dream became a nightmare in that very moment because she had cancer. And they did not know that she had cancer at all. It was pancreatic cancer. I think he said stage four, grade five. Uh, whatever that means, it's bad. Really, really bad. And so the baby was healthy, but she was very, very sick. And she fought and fought for the next two and a half, three years. A pastor's wife, her, her you know, ministry background and family and all the great faith and all of this stuff, but dealing with this cancer that was ravaging her life. And uh, they, they, they began to, to continue story after story explaining what happened, and they believed that God was going to intervene and that, that God was going to divinely heal this young woman. And uh, there came a point after they had removed both of her ovaries surgically, and part of her pancreas surgically, that her ovaries came back. 
And the doctors were stunned, and they didn't know how that could happen. They, they said, well, maybe we missed some cells or something like that. But her ovaries literally grew back. Uh, she was in menopause. That's what happens when you lose your ovaries. But it, it stopped, and her ovaries grew back. And everyone, her family thought, she thought, her friends thought, God has intervened somehow strangely in this situation. He has healed this woman. And she went into what seemed to be remission at the time, and, uh, and she was well enough to attend her sister's wedding. Her sister also spoke at the funeral. And uh, what she didn't tell people, even though she participated in that wedding and looked great, she, she kept it a secret, was that two weeks before that wedding, she could feel that she was getting sick again. And that wedding only took place a few months ago. And her condition began to deteriorate very, very, very rapidly. Uh, and she passed away on the 3rd of February, uh, just earlier this month. Again, I never, never had the privilege of meeting her, but her father spoke, her husband spoke, her, her mother-in-law spoke. I mean, you had person after person after person. Why? Because we don't know. We have no guarantees as to when it's going to happen, but it's going to happen to every single one of us, and sometimes without rhyme, without reason. And, and this, this story is that this man thought that he could beat the inevitable with all of his wealth and all of his possessions. And this is why God says to him, you, you know what you are? You're a fool if you think that. You, 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 you have become completely inwardly focused. You have become completely selfish and absorbed in yourself and your possessions and your wealth. And you know what? Who's going to get it now? Because the doctor's coming tonight and he's going to give you hours to live. Tonight is your night. And, and again, this harsh warning from Jesus. This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. It's greed. It's full-blown greed. It's a disease of the spiritual heart. It is a toxin of the spiritual heart. What is the remedy for this greed then? Uh, and I know it's really, really heavy, really heavy, but Jesus made it that way. And he told this story in a very, very succinct, very, very direct fashion. He pulls no punches. What is the remedy for greed? It's very simple in the scripture, if you, if you read it. Uh, generosity. Generosity is the solution for greed. To become, as Ebenezer Scrooge did in the famous Christmas carol story, to become a giver, to become a giver. This will remedy, this will cure, this will put the nail in the coffin, so to speak, of any greed that you may struggle with. Now, most pastors and most churches avoid the subject of giving and of generosity altogether. <laughs> most of them do, and with good reason. Uh, because we, we know of story after story after story, and I can think of a handful uh, just in the province of Quebec in recent years of churches that rip people off, of pastors who take the donations of people. You know, you have your, your wonderful income tax receipts of pastors who take that money and turn it into lavish living for themselves. And we know of stories like that. Uh, and on the other side, we know of stories of, you know, churches and pastors who tell people, well, if you give this money and you give this money, God will heal you. 
You can buy your blessing. You can buy your prosperity. You can put seed faith, seed money into your healing, right? And so we see, we see all of these extremes, and it makes us, don't talk to me about money in a church setting. Well, the, Jesus talked about money all the time. <laughs> the Bible talks about money all the time. It's very, very blunt and very, very direct because we all deal in it. We all deal in it all the time. Name me one thing that isn't associated or doesn't cost you any money. It's really, really hard to do that. In a direct or indirect fashion, it's connected somehow to money. I was thinking to myself, well, you can pray. It'll cost you nothing, right? You can, you can pray for free. Well, yes and no. Even prayer costs money sometimes, especially if you want to pray, you know, out loud without being arrested or thrown into the psych ward. You probably want to pray in a room somewhere. Well, somebody built that room. That room costs somebody some money. Maybe it costs you money. I don't know. So even prayer, you could argue, has an association with money these days. I mean, it's really, really hard to live life and not be thinking about money all the time. And the reality is that we all live in it. We all think about it all the time. And this is why it's talked about in the Bible all the time. So what do you do to become a giver? Fasten your seatbelts for just the next five minutes because you're going to hear things. Are you going to say, excuse me? Um, I, I, I have met many, many people having done this for nearly 17 years straight full time. Many, many people, and I've dealt with church money all of my ministry career, uh, all of the nitty gritty. Uh, I've seen all of it. I've seen abuse of it. I've seen it used properly. I've seen all, all kinds of things. People always ask, and I'm, and I'm talking largely to people who are people of faith, people who are trying to follow the Bible, people who profess to be disciples of Jesus, perhaps, and I'm asked often, well, how much do I give then? If, if generosity is the cure to greed, how much do I give? Are you really ready to hear it? Do, do you know what it is? It's a percentage. Anybody know what the percentage is? 20? Oh, that's a lot. It's not 20. Thank God it isn't 20. Do you know what the general benchmark is in the Bible for giving? I'll let an adult answer before. No adults? Yes. You're right. It is. That is the general benchmark that you see. You see it all over the Old Testament in particular. Uh, this is a percentage that we see. We use a fancy word in church called tithing, which has become a dirty word to many people. It just means a tenth. And we see this all over the place. We see it even from the beginning, from the book of Genesis, even before the law was written by Moses. We see people giving a tenth of their stuff away. Livestock, crops, uh, uh, real money, whatever they give a tenth. So if you're looking for a benchmark, I'm telling you that that's the benchmark. Now, most people in most Bible-believing churches do not give a tenth. Do you know how much they give? Any of you know? You don't know this one, I don't think. I'm going to tell you what, what most professing Christians in Bible-believing churches give across the world. I'm going to tell you the percentage. Any ideas? We'll play prices right. It's between 2 and 3%. That's what most professing Christians who, who, oh, yes, I love Jesus, I love the Bible, and they're giving 2 3%. Now, before you say, oh, shame on them, it's so bad. Uh, listen, it's better than nothing. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, you got to start somewhere. 
Uh, it's not easy. I mean, you, you tell people God expects you to give away a tenth of your income. God expects you to live on 90% of what you make. God tells you to live on less than you make. God tells you that it's not yours for you. That's hard. That's really, really hard when you're being bombarded by materialism, materialism, you got to have this, you got to pay this bill, you got to buy this for your kids, blah, 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 blah. And God's saying, God, a totally, totally different message. Uh, but that's the benchmark, uh, and not too many people hit that mark. But if you're looking for a mark, that's the mark. Uh, and to what do you give it? People ask this question all the time. People in Bible-believing churches ask this question all the time. To what do you give it? The answer is, in the Old Testament at least, they gave it to the temple. Uh, the temple in Jerusalem was a central place of worship. They would, that's where everything operated out of in terms of offering and sacrifice and all this stuff. They would give it to fund the temple, to run the temple. It was a central place of worship. In our time, in our day, we have no temple. Uh, the, the temple of the Holy Spirit is the community of faith. It's the church, it's the ecclesia, it's the people, it's you and me. Uh, so in the modern era, if you're looking for a place to give that, you give it to your local community of faith where you are nurtured and where you are spiritually fed and looked after. That's where you would give that, that tenth. Uh, that's the concept. Now, what I, what I have noticed in many, many people's lives, again, talking mostly to Christians, the, the ones who may get to a tenth, what they do is they divide that tenth up. In many cases, say, oh, yeah, I give a tenth of my income, but half of that tenth goes over here to my relatives overseas. Half of that tenth goes to this organization, and then whatever's left may go to my local assembly, my local church. I don't have warrant from the scripture to say that that's a bad thing. I don't. But what I can say to you, having observed many, many a church and watched the spending habits of many, many churches, not just one, not just two, but many, if everyone did that, in every Bible-believing church and took their tenth, if they made it to a tenth at least, and then they divided it up and spread it all over the place, and then their local church just got a little bit, you'd have no strong churches. You wouldn't have any. They would all be, they're all limited by the resources of the people and what the people give. It's simple. It's just like anything else. And let me just tell you, just, just to be blunt, honest, and frank with you, if every single Bible-believing Christian, professing Bible-believing Christian, actually gave a tenth of their household income, just in North America alone, you would have national and, and uh, continental revival. The culture would be completely turned upside down. The amount of things that the local church could do to transform people's lives would be astounding if every household in every evangelical church just in North America actually hit the benchmark of the Old Testament. You would have continental revival. You would be able to deal with things like drug abuse, which is rampant in the United States and even in Canada with these opioids that are, that are penetrating our nation. You would be able to deal with that. You would be able to deal with poverty, the breakdown of the family, violence, mental illness, all kinds of things. You could develop ministry and program. The local church would have the answer for the culture. 
if people actually hit the basic, basic benchmark that's in the Old Testament. That's how much power there is in that kind of resource. And even beyond that, half of the organizations that work around the world in third world countries would not even be necessary because the local churches in North America alone could fund work that fights poverty and, and, uh, and, and world hunger. You wouldn't need half of those organizations because people hit that benchmark. So God knows what he's doing. It's just it's a hard benchmark for people to hit. And if you can pass it, well, that's when you, you, you give the rest to all different kinds of organizations. But the local church, in God's view, is the agent of, of transformation and of light in this world. It's you and me. It's people like you and me. And just so you know, I tithe. <laughs> and sometimes it hurts, folks. Sometimes it hurts to write that check. Uh, I, I give it during the week. I go visit the district office. Sometimes it stings to write that check. Uh, but what happens when you give? And with this, we'll close. Just some, some benefits to you when you transform yourself into a giver rather than a keeper of everything. And this applies to everyone. Number one, you, you start budgeting. You tell me one person who learns to live off less than they make who doesn't know how to budget. Oh, they know how to budget all right. They know where every dollar is going because they don't live off 100%. They live off less than they make. And when you do that, you'll figure out, oh, man, this is where I spend my money. This is how much I spend on Starbucks. This is how much I'm spending on my cell phone. This is how much I spend on television. I have 500 channels, and I watch two. You know, you learn, you learn to budget because you say, well, if I want to live on less than I make and I want to be a giver and I want to be generous, that's going to take some work. I'm going to have to adjust my spending on myself. Yeah, you'll learn to budget. You'll learn to plan. You will learn that you are a manager and not an owner. Remember, you can take nothing with you to the other side. Zero goes to the other side. Everything that you have in this world, even your children, are on loan to you. They're on loan to you from God himself. Are you going to be a good manager or a bad manager because you're going to lose everything one day? It's all going to be gone. Somebody else is going to get it. What are you going to do to manage all that? When you, when you, when you give away a portion of your income, you learn that lesson. You learn, oh, this does not belong to me. In fact, everything I have is on loan to me. Eventually, it's all going to go. So how will I manage what I'm, what I'm given? Number three, you will grow your faith. When you give away a portion of your income and things are tight, you're like, okay, God, uh, you said this. You said to do this, so uh, how come I can't pay the bills? <laughs> uh, you said this, so where are you? Yeah, and you, you start learning, okay, are you going to trust God or not? Can I just tell you? You, you want to you take a, a thrill ride of your life? Go plant a church. Go plant a church and you'll learn faith. <laughs> My wife and I planted a church here 16 months ago. Let me tell you, we learn faith every week. Every week you learn. And I'm waiting for January and February to be over, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> because in January and February, it's like, okay, uh, we need to trust God because... It, typically in churches, and this one's no different, people don't give too much in January and February because MasterCard and Visa's after them <laughs> because of Christmas, right? No wonder Scrooge said humbug. Sometimes I'm tempted to say humbug as well. 
because I know where the people's money is going to go at Christmas and in January, February, it's going to be, it's going to be really, really tight to just to run. It's, it's normal, okay? I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip on you or a, or a heavy on you, but it will grow your faith when you learn to give away some of what you have. But most importantly, it will impact lives. It will impact people's lives. I have people, I'm being very blunt with you, very direct with you today. I don't beat around the bush uh, with money because, uh, you know, we run money very, very well uh, in this church because I've seen it run well and I've seen it run not so well in other places. So I always endeavor to make sure that it's run well. This church is, is quite unique in many ways because this church essentially, even though it's 16, 17 months old, can run just because of you folks. Just because you folks give and you give consistently and you give regularly, we are able to run without being funded and depending on outside funding from someone else, some other church, some other organization. You say, well, what's the big deal about that? Most church plants, poof, five years to get to that point, minimum. And in Canada, sometimes it's even worse. So you know what? Somebody's giving something because we're able to run. And right now you should say, well, that's good. You should say that's good. You should give yourselves a hand or something. Oh, my, you're very, very quiet. But I have, but I have people who have asked me. They say, Pastor, when are we going to get a building? Like, it's nice we meet in a movie theater and all that, but it sure would be nice to have a building. Like, when are we going to get a building? Whenever people say that to me in my, in, my, in my spirit, in my heart, the thought comes, are you dreaming in Technicolor? <laughs> Sorry, I just let it out there. Because, folks, we're nowhere near there, okay? We're nowhere. We run even, like we break even. Some months we run, we run red, uh, fortunately, again, because we manage things well, we have what you call margin, you see. And when you have margin, when you're red, well, you dip into the margin, and then after a while, the margin comes back, and you operate, you learn to operate with margin. Uh, we're not blowing our margin anytime soon on a building. Uh, I know the hassle of buildings and how much they cost to run and how much they cost to repair. So we'll see what God does when God does but please, folks, we're nowhere near. But let me just give you food for thought. If everyone just in this church, which is considered a small church, you got 35, 40 households in this church, you know, 65 people on average. Not bad for 16, 17 months, mind you. If everyone in this church actually hit the Old Testament benchmark of tithing, not only would we have a building, we would probably have two more maybe even full-time paid staff. And the impact that we would be able to make in this community would be astounding. Because let me tell you, the day this church gets a building, it's not going to be open for four hours a week on a Sunday. It's going to be open a lot more than that. And the things that we'll be able to do to meet the needs of just the community of Brossar, which are many, many needs here, uh, would be astounding. And that's just if 35, 40 families actually made it to the place where they were giving away a tenth of their income. That's the impact that can happen. Every week I serve, as you know, and I, I boast about it now, uh, over at the one of the largest food banks 
uh, in the whole South Shore over at Mission Nouvelle Génération in Provence in, in Brossard. Hong and Lee, I see them there on Tuesdays. They're there on Tuesday afternoons. And uh, this is a food bank that serves a total probably a thousand families a week, not only in Brossard, but in, in the Montérégie and the greater Montreal area. Do you know, folks, that poverty is real even in the big cities? Because I see poor people every week. And now I run their little thrift store there Mondays and Tuesdays, and I see the poor people every week, every day they come in. Because people are hurting and people are struggling. You know what it takes to meet people's needs and to impact people's lives? It's people who will be generous. People who will say, it doesn't all belong to me. I don't want to build bigger barns for myself. I want to learn to be generous and give away some of what I have. And when you do that, my friends, your, your view of, of life is going to be transformed. That materialism that we're inundated with, you're, you're going to see your whole worldview is going to shift because you learn to become generous and a giver. 